This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. The story has remained in the news cycle largely because of student protests and walkouts in Tennessee. But what else have we learned about the tragic mass shooting at a Christian school in Nashville? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's founder and editor of Get Religion and author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So what is this story all about so far? What's it not about? Well, this is really what we talked about last week. It's highly unusual for us to come back to the same event again. And basically, we have to walk through the same basic questions because they remain highly relevant. The, you know, the coverage of some subjects has increased. People who live in Tennessee are aware of the fact that there have been tumultuous demonstrations all week long, you know, in the legislature in, te- in Tennessee about gun control issues. And of course, that's one of the big issues that runs along beside this. But I think the best thing we can do is ask that question that you just asked, what is this story about? And have to admit that there are three very valid stories that should be covered here. And to some degree, we're seeing them covered in, as you would expect, in Tennessee media. And to some degree, we're seeing them covered in Christian media. We're not seeing them covered in national media. We can all say that were the circumstances of this attack different, they probably would. But then, of course, we've had Donald Trump's arraignment this week for the the national media to swerve off into it. But I think if, if our listeners will think through these three stories, what have I seen about these three stories in the coverage, I think it will do our listeners a service to think that way. So let me run through what I see as the the three obvious stories here. One is the victims, the church. And you throw in on top of that, you have an attack on a church, an attack on a church school, the killing of children, and you have all of this at the start I mean, to where you're going to get together for the first time as a community, and it's going to be Palm Sunday. And you're going, some of the funerals and things will occur literally during Holy Week. And you're headed toward the most important day in Christianity on the Western calendar. That would be Easter coming up for Eastern Christianity. Pascha is the following week. It's one week apart this year. So you have all kinds of issues that come along with the fact that we had a worshiping community directly attacked. Because I think you would, the people at this church would say the school was an extension of their congregation. 
I think you and I have talked about this before. It's amazing to me the number of stories that happen during a year when it would be totally appropriate for reporters to bring up a, a theological term, and that theological term is theodicy. And theodicy, to use C.S. Lewis's memorable phrase, is putting God in the dock, putting God on trial. And the questions that come with theodicy uh, come along with earthquakes and hurricanes and wars and mass shootings and pandemics. And the, the whole thing is, why is God doing this? Or why did God let that happen? And the fact that you have these congregations, there were several congregations that had students in this school, but especially Covenant Presbyterian itself, this is just not your ordinary grief that they're wrestling with here. It's a former student attacking the school, and we'll come back to the shooter here again in, a, in another one of these stories. But why did God let this happen is something you always ask when you're dealing with this kinds of questions. The timing with Holy Week makes it more poignant. I watched some of Covenant's Sunday service, which was not held in their own facility for obvious reasons right now. Their facility remains a crime scene. And, I mean, listeners who know hymnody, just try to picture the context of the first service after this mass shooting and singing the hymn, Abide in Me. It is well with my soul. These types of hymns, and to some degree it was a funeral opening Holy Week days before Good Friday and Holy Saturday, the ultimate contemplation of death and eternity. So the victims is definitely story, and I would say there's been some good coverage. The Associated Press, I think, helped greatly by the fact that so many of these churches have their worship services online and on YouTube, so you have a chance. You don't have to try to be in person in every one of these churches. You can watch the services and listen to the sermons and catch the hymns. There's a pretty good AP story out there in which they basically talked to a lot of pastors and they looked at how this was affecting sermons, etc. And that's a valid story. The second story is basically guns, 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 and, oh, by the way, the GOP is using this to attack trans people. There's that meme that exists in social media called GOP pounces, that this may be a bad situation, but the GOP, the Republicans and conservatives, have pounced on it, which means the people who actually, they're attacking the attacker. They're attacking the community. And the headline in the Washington Post story, the right exploits Nashville shooting to escalate anti-trans rhetoric, is a must-read story if you want to understand kind of how this works, even to the point that the story goes on to raise some totally valid issues. For example, if the shooter was in transition from being a female to being a male, 
Was it right for, of course, it had to be Donald Trump bringing up the testosterone image? Take a, a valid subject. I mean, was testosterone a factor and the mood changes and the anger? So they get to, first of all, they get to blame Donald Trump for bringing it up. And then they get to say that the scientific literature is mixed. I haven't seen a whole lot of literature and discussions of the effects of testosterone dosages that don't mention mood swings and potential anger and aggression. Does that mean that that's proven in this case? Of course not. Of course it doesn't mean that it's been proven. Does it need to be discussed? Well, yes, except like this story says, bringing it up is a way of attacking trans people, which means we're going to bring it up and dismiss it, but it was wrong to bring it up in the first place. And then third, you do have the ongoing issue of the attacker and why Audrey slash Aiden Hale, according to the police, targeted this church and had targeted some other locations, which brings up the quote-unquote manifesto, whereas we now have stories saying they've uncovered just stacks of personal journals and plans for the attack. The attack was planned for many weeks in advance. And as I pointed out last week, the attacker specifically said, I've left behind more than enough evidence for people to be able to kind of figure out why I did what I did. So those are the three stories. So listeners can ask themselves, which of these three stories do they think is dominating the coverage that they're seeing in their media? What did you make of the Associated Press story, Pastors, Palm Sunday, a bomb after Nashville school shooting? Well, it was a natural story. It was a valid story, and it's a pretty good story. There's been several other stories related to the people who died and kind of their religious lives explored and the aspects of their faith and their service to this school. But in particular, Scott Sauls, the pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church, they got into his sermon, and I watched his sermon, and I transcribed a lot of it and considered using some of it in my column this week, which went out to the syndicate, oh, maybe an hour ago. We'll start coming out in newspapers late to uh, later this week on Good Friday of all days and then Holy Saturday. What a subject to write about before Easter. They took some good material from their interview with this pastor, and uh, none of us is guaranteed tomorrow, let alone the next hour. He said, the only comfort that exists in life and death for body and soul is that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a lot of religious language that simply can't be avoided in this story. And in this case, with a reporter who has a lot of experience related to religion and religious topics being based in Nashville, frankly, that religious literature was put right into the story. One of the pastors is allowed to bring up Palm Sunday and how this leads to crucifixion and then resurrection. Palm Sunday gives us the language and the paradigm to understand that though this tragedy is senseless and afflicting, there is nevertheless hope. There is light for the darkness. Another Presbyterian pastor talking about that. So I think it's a good story. I do wish that they had watched a little bit more of the services and actually 
talked about the hymns and talked about the prayers. It was a chance to dive into the role that worship plays in the process of mourning and grief and the theological questions that the church has been dealing with for two millennia. This was a chance to go into them and they handled it. I mean, the last words of this piece are, we need Easter this year. We need Easter. And that's an obvious point, but it's a valid one. So it was given enough space to handle some of it. Sure, there are details I wish had been included, but it was a solid story, and I was glad to see it. And frankly, I hope that since the Associated Press goes out nationwide, I hope people had a chance to read that story. My own column this week is related to that, and I don't think I've seen, the last time I checked, nobody has spotted this, but once again, because services are posted on the internet, I was able to go back to March 5th, which is three weeks before the attack, and the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church, of the Reverend Chad Scruggs, whose daughter, Haley, of course, was killed in the attack. He preached a sermon on Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Even though he knew he could raise Lazarus from the dead, facing a grieving family, why did Jesus weep? I mean, so here is a guy, three weeks before his church is attacked, his daughter is killed. He's preaching a lengthy sermon on why grief is an appropriate response to violence, tragedy, and death. He asks the question directly in the sermon, how do we face death in our world, especially untimely deaths, without the pain and confusion of death leading us to despair? That's the question in his sermon three weeks before the attack. It's an amazing sermon, and I frankly devoted almost half of my column this week to the content of his sermon and what he had to say. There were other sermons that obviously, there's, I don't think there's any way they could have been as poignant as this man preaching on this subject three weeks before the attack on his own congregation and the death of one of his children. But pastors dealt with this. They've dealt with it before. They've dealt with cancer. They've dealt with lost children. They've dealt with leukemia. They've dealt with car accidents. One of the three stories that I think news consumers have every reason to expect the press to cover in this case is a theological story about this event occurring before Holy Week. And frankly, you're going to have to put scripture in the newspaper. You're going to have to put hymns in the newspaper. You're going to have to put sermons, preaching language, suffering, tears, the crucifixion, resurrection, you're going to have to put that in the paper this week because it's a part of one of the most important news stories in the country. Terry, what did you make of the Tennesseans' coverage? Well, they've had wall-to-wall -wall coverage. They've had all kinds of things, including some very interesting coverage about the shooter, and we'll come back to that, I think, in a minute. 
but they've done a lot to cover the grieving community. The grieving community has been probably, along with gun control, the two dominant storylines. And there's a degree to that, that they're, they're stressing that because they don't want to talk about some of the issues related to the shooter, or they're being tipped by police that the situation with the, the attacker, that there are complexities there, hang on, we'll get to that. And I, I mentioned that last week. I think there's a distinct possibility that police officials are telling reporters there's all kinds of stuff in that manifesto, and we're having to check a lot of it out. I think that's probably what they're telling, as opposed to just saying, we've got five notebooks full of stuff, and you're never going to get to hear about them. We don't yet know that they're going to write off the situation with the manifesto. But before we go to that, there was one story in particular that just caught me off guard. In a way, Nashville has a very, very strong conservative Presbyterian community with all kinds of people who are active in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, and running right alongside it is the growth of alternative conservative reformed Anglican congregations, Anglicans that are not a part of the Episcopal Church anymore. You have all kinds of famous people that are associated with the PCA and these conservative Anglican churches. Uh, Beth Moore leaps to mind. David French leaps to mind. This is a very interesting community, and you can't cover Nashville without facing the power of the Presbyterian Church in America. So I was surprised when there was a, a valid and interesting and quite in-depth story about the history of Covenant Presbyterian and kind of how it's very traditional architecture and it's more traditional, reformed, lofty approach to worship. Yet right in the middle with that, a word just jumped out that in kind of framing who these people are. Let me read the two paragraphs from here. And they're talking to a uh, pastor who was involved in the formation of the PCA as a denomination in the Nashville area, etc. First Presbyterian's pastor at the time, a conservative, who disagreed with changes in the denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA, such as female ordination, and his supporters left First Presbyterian and formed Christ Presbyterian in 1981. Christ Presbyterian is the church that Covenant grew out of. They affiliated with the PCA, then a newer denomination formed by a fundamentalist Presbyterian faction. And then the next paragraph, that denomination was conceived as a reaction against liberalism. McGowan told the Tennessean in 2010, et cetera, et cetera. Fundamentalism. This was not a word that I expected to see the state's most powerful newspaper and the newspaper that's framing most of the coverage in Nashville say that don't forget that Covenant Presbyterian and Christ Presbyterian, the church it came out of, don't forget that they were a part of a fundamentalist movement against the mainstream First Presby you know, Presbyterian Church USA. To me, this would make as much sense intellectually. I know this probably has happened. You may have even heard it happen. That, to me, would be like calling the Missouri Synod a fundamentalist reaction to 
against the evangelical church in America, even though I know the, the histories of those churches are not parallel to the formation of the PCA. The Reformed tradition, there may be Presbyterian fundamentalists out there, but I don't think that's a word that needed to be brought into this discussion of this particular attacked congregation in Nashville, Tennessee. There's a lot of valid stuff in this story about the complexities of the worship issues, but when you get later to why they did a school, why was Covenant School created, why did Christ Presbyterian do a, its school? So when you hear something like this quote from one of the leaders there, in Reformed communities, quote, the commitment is, how do we steward a biblical worldview? It's not simply an anti-culture protectionism, but how do we create education that's not just moralistic, but really preparing kids to live in this real world? That's language that you would hear a lot of Reformed, theologically informed people use. Does that sound like fundamentalism to you? Terry, coming to that term, fundamentalist, I think you've said several times before that the safest journalistic rule is to use that term only when the person you're describing uses that term to describe themselves, when they call themselves a fundamentalist. How do the media define that term? How do they use it? People who believe things that we think are stupid, you know, for the most part. And I think in the current atmosphere, by that I, be, I don't just mean this tragedy, I mean the last decade or two, I think it's biblical literalism is what they mean by that, which means thinking the Bible has anything to say about the controversial issues that we deal with in our time, whether that's abortion. You get into this fact that the Bible has, it seems, has a lot to say about social justice and economic justice and the environment and a whole lot of other things, and I would argue the Bible does. But when you say the Bible has something to say about sex outside of marriage and the breakdown in the family and gender confusion, that's biblical literalism. And so using the word fundamentalist to describe some of the PCA churches of Nashville is really amazing because whatever you want to call the Reformed worldview, I don't think you can call anything linked to John Calvin anti-intellectual or, or fundamentalist. And anyone who has listened to 60 seconds of the sermons by some of the pastors involved in this story, such as Pastor Scruggs or Pastor Sauls or some of the other people related directly to these churches, I think you're going to find these are highly literate, educated, informed people. So trying to pin fundamentalist on these churches is kind of leaning towards saying, and this is very speculative, I apologize that, but I think people can say this might happen. If we find out that the shooter attacked the school she or he once attended and did so because she felt it was judgmental, as judgmental as her parents, and that she felt unaffirmed 
and that she felt attacked by their beliefs, I think we can expect to hear it explained that, well, after all, this was a pretty fundamentalist church. That doesn't mean they got what they had coming, but, well, you know, bad things happen when people are really, really judgmental. So let's talk about the shooter a little bit more. You wanted to reinforce a few points that we yeah. made when we talked last time. Yeah, we talked about a, a lot of things that after, when I write the piece every week at Get Religion, in which I embed the podcast code, I've had a chance to, to sit down and think about some of what you and I discussed. And I think we really need to understand the degree to which the press can't figure out how to handle the following contradiction or built-in problem. They're doing everything they can for this not to be a hate crime or to be able to say that Christians were targeted here because Christians are hated and that's that. There's that dilemma and the manifesto and the shooter's papers and journals, whether we'll ever get to hear about them, is to some degree linked with all of that. But here's the more complex thing. One of the big issues in gun control discussions right now, and I want to remind listeners here that I'm a pretty pro-gun control guy. There's a lot of things I wish could happen with gun control that can't happen under our Constitution. But one of the things we're discussing here is how do we keep guns out of the hands of people who are mentally unstable are suffering from emotional conditions or problems the police said the shooter was under medical slash counseling treatment for an emotional disorder now that's the exact kind of thing that the left would validly in my opinion want to say, well, can't we have some laws that would at least allow parents or other people involved in their lives to red flag somebody so that they can't get their hands under guns on guns under these kinds of conditions? Shouldn't people who are wrestling with mental illness or mental problems or emotional disorders or, in the case of this shooter, autistic but high-functioning, we have all of that going on. And that's a part of the gun control debate. Yet at the same time, journalists are having to say, oh, but we don't think this crime had anything to do with the fact that this shooter was in transition because of experiencing gender dysphoria. And we don't think that has anything to do with the links between gender dysphoria, people be going into transition treatments who turn out, especially girls, turn out to be autistic, which this shooter was. And we certainly don't want to discuss whether high levels of gender dysphoria are found among people who are suffering from emotional disorders or extremely high levels of anxiety or high levels of confusion about their own personality and their own personhood, their being. We don't want to link that to this case 
because what if it turns out that this killer was unstable and that might have had something to do with the debate about his or her gender, etc. The Tennessean did a pretty brave story where they mentioned that people were using language that this young woman, Audrey Hale, who was a, a fine athlete apparently in high school, her relationships with other female athletes at that time, they said they used the word verged on stalking the degree to which she has kind of pressured them and maintained in contact with them. There was some really disturbing language in that Tennessean story. But are we going to end up saying that had something to do with this attack? Well, who, what, when, where, why, and how was the whole theme of last week's podcast. And I just wanted to remind listeners once again, the why in this story remains a valid part of it. And the press faces some really complex issues right now. There are subjects they don't want to talk about for political, cultural, moral, and I would say doctrinal reasons. Yet we could find out that this school was targeted for issues that were rooted in issues of religion, sexuality, moral judgment, the teachings of this particular church and this particular home, that may still turn out to be true, and the press is going to really struggle to cover that. So with that said, at least the manifesto, if not the other writings, will certainly at some point come out. Are we going to have to go to conservative media outlets to hear huh. what it said with about a couple minutes here? Your thoughts? Yeah, I don't know if we're going to get all the documents. Right now... The Nashville Tennessean says openly, the FBI is studying these documents to try to decide what to do with them. Now, in the current controversies of American life and governance concerning the FBI, about half of America doesn't see those as comforting words, that the FBI is trying to decide what the public needs to know about this crime. The fact that it's not just a document. There was a suicide letter in the shooter's bedroom, the Tennessean has reported, along with five journals and a stack of other papers. And the police now once again have said this crime was planned weeks in advance. There was careful study of other shootings. There was careful study of surveillance. And apparently there were multiple possible attack sites chosen. So if we find a pattern in those attack sites, and if that pattern is explained in the journals, I don't think a lot of people in the media are going to want to discuss that. So will we find out? I don't know. Will conservative media organizations file lawsuits for Freedom of Information Act? Will there be any sort of trial for any reason related to this in which documents can be claimed and released or made public? I don't know, but I guarantee you that at some point, if the memoirs come out, 
we will find out that conservative Christians and other people like them are pouncing on the contents. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's founder and editor of Get Religion and author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, thank you for your time. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.